So I think there was a bit of a lag, so you never know exactly when you started. So basically we'll kick off. So to everyone in the hall, fantastic to see you. Welcome. Thank you for coming. We've had a really good morning discussing organisational questions and some other things. And now we're going to come to the main uh, seminar uh, or kind of a, a, a meet of the meeting. Um, and today we're basically talking about immigration. Hot potato catch, as Alan Partridge, <laughs> as Alan Partridge would say. So um, it, it's, it's not really um, a huge amount new to say, it, other than it's a topic that never goes far from our news screens, never goes far from our newspaper headlines. Depends exactly which paper you read, but you know, Daily Mail, it's like the bread and butter, the kind of stories about immigration. And of course, recently we've had the new um, illegal migration bill, which has been put before Parliament by a host of Tory MPs. Uh, and I'll be talking a little bit about the ins and outs of that bill, its provisions and what it is about um, shortly. But before I do that, um, our party has an excellent book. Do you want to hang that up? I don't want to steal Dan's thunder. But it has an excellent book uh, called Capitalism and, and Immigration. Um, and I'm not going to ruin Stan's talk by telling you what it's about. It was written by Harpal Bra in response to a period when our party had quite an intense discussion about immigration, its meaning to the working class, its meaning to the capitalist ruling class of our country, and therefore what the position should be of a communist party, of a progressive working class. What should the position of the working class be towards immigration? Should we be in favour or opposed? And literally, it was should we be in favour or opposed that generated a very heated debate within our party, the Communist Party of Great Britain, many years ago now. And it was around our discussion about the modern phenomenon of, of, of immigration um, and the exact content and the way it's used by our ruling class, in particular to divide and weaken the working class, when really we need to be focused on our struggle to secure better pay, conditions, lifestyle, our short-term and our long-term program, and ultimately to, to win power and end this system. So what role immigration pays can be seen when it constantly comes up in our news. And we're going to first of all start with a talk by Dan, who's going to summarise this book with some more up-to-date information. This book is available on our website. It's really worth seeing. So if you go to The Communists, T-H-E, Communists, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-S-T-S, thecommunists.org, uh, and if you go, there's a section on their shop, and if you look under pamphlets, you can find this booklet. If you've not had it, I think we distributed it to many party members, but it's well worth reading. It'll have some information and analysis which is new, and Dan is going to summarise and talk a little bit about the content of this, and then I'm going to give a, a, a brief update, if you like, on the latest proposed legislation and its particular meaning. So with that, Dan, I'm going to hand over to you. If you give me just a second, I'm going to hand over the mic to Dan. For all of our listeners at home, I am going to hand over the mic to Dan. If I can pop that on, it just improves the sound a bit. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, that's good. Patience is a virtue. You haven't done my makeup. <laughs> so I'm just going to nip and focus the camera on you, Dan, if you carry on. No problem. So, yeah, as Ranjit said, this is a, a fantastic resource. And, um, yeah, reading through it again for this presentation uh, brings up many points and many interesting uh, facts 
uh, about the phenomenon of immigration um, economically and in terms of like the, the sentiment and legislation um, put forward by governments and the media. Um, like Ranjit says, it's, it's a hot potato issue, isn't it? It's, it's one that um, you know, the left find it very difficult to tackle and it's very difficult to discuss amongst the working class because it's been so thoroughly polarised and uh, pushed upon us uh, through the media and through um, what people in the government say in various political parties. And actually, as we'll, we'll discuss, there's not a huge difference between the positions of the Labour Party and the Tory party on immigration. And there hasn't been a huge um, difference between the Labour Party and the Tory party and, for example, the BNP. Um, although maybe people don't uh, recognise the name BNP anymore because they've, they've gone out of fashion, they've kind of disappeared a bit. But certainly um, over a decade ago, uh, 20 years ago uh, and longer, they were uh, the face of the British far right and the face of like, anti-immigrant um, sentiment in this country, uh, strong anti-immigrant um, racist uh, perspectives in this country. And the various political parties uh, used them to justify uh, variously harsh uh, immigration, anti-asylum seeker laws. Uh, but we'll come into that a little bit later. Um, and on the way here, I was, I was just reminded of uh, when I used to live in Acton, uh, just down the road from here, and I'd first moved there. And I'd uh, gone into a corner shop, and the window had been smashed. And uh, I came in, it was an Indian shopkeeper. Um, you know, clearly emigrated from India you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, but very clearly Indian. And I say, hi, how are you? I'll show, show about the window, what happened? And then he starts going on about, are these bloody Somalis moving into the area? So <laughs> even, the, even the immigrants to Britain gain an anti-immigrant sentiment once they've been here long enough. And that just goes to show the power of uh, certainly our media um, and everything else in our society. Uh, pushing this anti-immigrant idea on people, uh, telling people that immigrants are the cause of their problems, that immigration itself is a problem, that different people are inherently um, problematic because of their, their culture or where they're from or what they look like. So we, we have to counter that far-right ideology on racism, uh, on, on immigration um, and racism. Uh, but it's also bourgeois mainstream ideology. Uh, but we also have to recognise and fight against the liberal arguments against this anti-immigration, this racist rhetoric. And liberals try to paint the picture that all immigrants, all asylum seekers, everyone, uh, are angelic beings that could do no wrong. And from an economic standpoint, they argue that they do all the jobs that we don't want to do, right? So <laughs> it's a once incredibly patronising, naive view and incredibly... Um, you know, prejudice in itself. We like immigrants. They clean our toilets, they pick our fruit and vegetables. Bless them. And they'll do it for a crap wage as well. Um, it's, you know, it's an incredibly, you know, almost as harmful view um, looking at immigrants as um, essentially just minimum wage um, workers that will do the jobs that us educated, nice liberal middle class Britons don't want to do because we're busy. <laughs> busy uh, going to university and getting fancy jobs in offices or uh, universities or whatever, and we don't want to go out and do those jobs. And that was actually a myth busted in, um, after, after Brexit when um, 
you know, there was all, all this liberal arguments about, oh, British people don't want to do these jobs. And people in rural areas that couldn't find work because they live in small villages or towns and there's no jobs there, did try and go and apply for, for example, picking fruit or vegetables. And they were turned down because the employers said, no, we don't want to bother trying to hire them because they won't live and work in the conditions that our migrant labourers are willing labourers are willing to put up with. Um, so it's not that people don't want or need to do these jobs, it's that they're so used to super exploiting the immigrants that do these jobs that they don't think that other people will put up with those conditions and won't even bother trying to hire them. But these naive black and white arguments don't really actually help to simplify the matter uh, and they don't accurately get down to the bottom of you know, why people come to this country, uh, what the mechanisms or economics behind it are. Uh, and that's why the question of immigration has long been a thorn in the side of the British working class for almost as long as the British working class has existed. Um, as of 2020, 281 million people, this is globally, 3.6% of the worldwide population work outside of their countries of birth. That's almost triple the number of migrants 36 years ago, and 81 million more than when our pamphlet was published originally in 2009. This recent period of increased immigration also coincides with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, which ended a period of relative stability and left imperialism mostly unchecked as it visited economic and military carnage across the world, particularly these former socialist countries where work was guaranteed, housing was guaranteed, and everything was stripped away from these people as they were forced into destitution, or worse. Over the past century or two, migration, which has come mostly from poorer countries, whose inhabitants tend to have darker skin, to richer countries, whose inhabitants tend to have lighter skin, and you know, if you want to go more into the, the reasons of why the world is separated into these richer, more developed areas, why the, that happened to uh, occur that way. Jared Diamond's book, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, is a very, very good, um, quite a materialist, historic, uh, historical materialist uh, analysis of, of how the world developed the way it did. Why did Europeans happen to uh, get te this technology faster, be able to industrialise and uh, essentially conquer most or pretty much all of the world um, during that period of early capitalism industrialization. And uh, I hate to break it to um, any members of the BNP or the far right that are watching, it's not because Europeans as people are inherently superior or more intelligent or more capable. It's simply uh, a coincidence of various factors, including the resources, including, um, you know, this uh, spread of the, the population across Europe throughout Asia as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a coincidence of resources and circumstance, basically. But as it happens, that's the way the world um, was divided and developed uh, throughout the period of like the early development of capitalism a few hundred years ago and the more recent period of imperialism. Um, and so it it's, makes it a lot easier for the government and the far right and the bourgeoisie to point the finger at immigrants and say, look, these people, these ones, the black ones, the brown ones, 
the ones from these different countries and different cultures, it's easy to pick them out and identify them and say, these are your enemies, they're coming over here, they're like hordes of animals, which has been, you know, that's something we associate with kind of Nazi uh, propaganda, painting people as in subhuman, insects, etc. And I was quite shocked when in 2014, 2015, when the recent uh, refugee crisis uh, was occurring across Europe, where we had lots of refugees uh, coming from the Middle East and, and Africa, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. Uh, that kind of language was echoed by David Cameron and plenty of other people, who was Prime Minister at the time, and plenty of other people um, in government and in the media. And so more recently, overtly racist and anti-immigrant parties have also been on the rise across Europe, and they've been gaining popularity at the expense of the mainstream bourgeois parties. It's happening in France, Belgium, Denmark, Sweden, Germany, um, uh, all across the continent, essentially. These mainstream parties um, echo the anti-immigrant sentiment of the far-right parties in words and legislation, but they also oversee growing levels of immigration to their countries. And that's something we have to, to look at and understand this uh, contradiction between uh, the words and legislation of the, the mainstream parties, the bourgeois parties, who are in words and indeed anti-immigrant, but also indeed um, seeking more immigrants uh, to the countries that they govern. But immigration isn't a modern phenomenon. It didn't occur or it didn't start occurring in the most recent uh, migrant crisis, as they called it in uh, the past 10 years or so, um, or in the wind rush and immigration from the Commonwealth in the 50s and 60s, um, or even um, with the Irish before then and in the, the 19th century. And uh, they faced some of the, you know, as virulent racism uh, back then as uh, any other population has done uh, in recent years as well. Uh, but present-day anti, present anti-immigration targets uh, depend on which way the wind is blowing, really. So it was Polish 15 to 20 years ago, um, Africans and Muslims, uh, particularly people from the Middle East uh, recently as well. But immigration is certainly not a modern phenomenon. It's existed throughout history. If it didn't, we wouldn't be here at all. Uh, from like, Prehistoric Neolithic uh, Anatolian farmers, that's like modern-day Turkey, uh, Romans, Angles, Saxons, Normans, and later centuries of immigration from across Europe and further afield. They're all Germans, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Normans were, uh, yeah, North Germanic. Germans. Anyway. <laughs> but there were some others. Um, but yeah, and smaller, smaller waves of migration from people across the world. So the idea that immigrants would dilute some kind of British racial homogeneity is nonsense. And the idea of the destruction of national culture is something that is constantly changing. I have no doubt that anyone living in Britain today would find the culture of 50 to 80 years ago strange, let alone 100 or 500 years ago. So that's something that's constantly in flux and constantly in change. People move across the world um, for various reasons. And culture changes and develops and populations change. But 
Systemic large-scale migration is unique to capitalism. Developing capitalism required a complete shift in how society was organised. From feudal serfs spread out living on small parcels of land uh, and not generally moving because they were tied to the land. Um, this changed to dense concentration of workers living close to mines, mills, factories and other centres of industry. Through economic or physical compulsion, labour had to be moved to where the work was, whether that was within one country or from one country to another. The first large-scale cruel movement of labour began in the transatlantic slave trade, where 30 million Africans were transported to the Americas. Only 11 million survived the journey. These 11 million were put to brutal work under the threat of torture or death if they resisted. The vast majority of the British ruling class, indeed lots of the rich um, people in Britain today can trace their wealth back to this, and the majority of Parliament at the time, made fortunes in the slave trade. And if you go around London, Bristol, Liverpool, Glasgow, you can see the streets named after the slave trade and the industries uh, that the slaves were put to work in, like Jamaica Street, Tobacco Street, uh, there's, you know, Tobacco Dock. Um, and, yeah, the riches from the slave industry uh, still have, uh, you know, a profound mark on the wealth of Britain and really enabled it to uh, develop capitalism and develop into an imperialist nation. And it helped Britain kickstart the Industrial Revolution. And the 30 million slaves just go to show capitalism's colossal demand for human labour. And although on a much smaller scale and incomparable to the cruelty and disregard for human life shown in the transatlantic slave trade, British and Irish convicts were shipped to the colonies to provide the labour needed to create new settlements, farm and develop industries. Capitalism also relied on the free movement of labour. Free as in free market, not free as in actually free. Workers moved to the centre of developing or developed capitalism to escape poverty and starvation. In England, this was forcibly driven by the enclosures, which started in the early 17th century and continued until 1914, shockingly, but also compelled by those looking for work or to escape starvation, such in the case of Ireland and potato famine, which was caused by uh, British capitalism, British imperialism itself. Workhouses, which were not places of charity for the poor, but virtually open prisons for those without money or a roof over their head, would march their impoverished patrons to factories to go to work. All of Britain's cities were migrant cities throughout the 19th century, filled with migrants from the British countryside or further afield. Much like today, half the population of London were born outside of the city. In the latter part of the 19th century, anti-Irish sentiment was as strong or stronger than the worst anti-immigrant sentiments today. Marx described it as the following. Every industrial and commercial centre in England possesses a working class divided into two hostile camps, English proletarians and Irish proletarians. The ordinary English worker hates the Irish worker as a competitor who lowers his standard of life. In relation to the Irish worker, he feels himself a member of the ruling nation and so turns himself into a tool of the aristocrats and capitalists of his country against Ireland, thus strengthening their domination over himself. 
He cherishes religious, social and national prejudices against the Irish worker. The Irishman pays him back with interest in his own money. He sees the English worker at once the accomplice and the stupid tool of the English rulers in Ireland. This antagonism is artificially kept alive and intensified by the press, the pulpit and the comic papers. In short, by all the means, all the means at the disposal of the ruling class. This antagonism is the secret of the impotence of the English working class, despite its organisation. It is the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power. And that class is fully aware of it. Thanks, Marx. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic quote which really elucidates why this is such an important issue for the British working class to get right, why this is an important issue for us to get right and to be able to talk about it clearly. Uh, because it's one of the primary mechanisms by which workers are pitted against each other. And when other forms of diversion and um, distraction fail, it always comes back down to immigrants and immigration as the targets of the vitriol of governments and the media for why the situation in this country is bad for workers. But there are plenty of reasons for migration. Um, you know, it's, it's often said that people are just coming here to, to claim benefits or, you know, con the system or, or whatever, or, you know, come to commit crimes or do terrorism. And particularly notable in the past decade or two has been the anti-Muslim hysteria, which has been kicked into overdrive as a result of the mass movements of refugees that followed in the wake of the destruction of Iraq, Libya and the proxy war in Syria, which gave grist to the mill of these bourgeois racist parties. But it was these parties that were sponsoring the destruction of these countries and actually sponsoring terrorists to come and live in this country, real terrorists, um, who were given such freedom of movement that they were able to, in the case of Libya, move back and forth between um, Manchester and Libya, members of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Uh, and the child of uh, some of these terrorists uh, was the one that blew up that Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. So while hundreds of thousands of people are of, who are fleeing the violence and destruction visited upon these countries by the imperialists and their proxy armies and their proxy terrorists, the terrorists that are complicit in destroying these countries, working with the British government, are given free range to travel back and forth. Immigrants, especially asylum seekers and those attempting to cross the Mediterranean and the Channel in flimsy boats, face lethal sabotage from coast guards. They're often portrayed as job thieves and benefit scroungers at the same time. So they're coming here to steal our jobs and claim benefits somehow. That is if they aren't portrayed as criminals or terrorists. Why do these people undertake a journey so arduous that most of us could not begin to imagine it? Trekking tens or hundreds of miles by foot risking kidnapping, dehydration, starvation, drowning or murder to end up in such a strange land. The reality is that they either seek to escape war and persecution or to earn enough money to provide a better life for their families, or both. The brutal history of colonialist loot and imperialist exploitation has left their countries of origin with a legacy of dire poverty, disease and hunger which continues to be aggravated by unequal terms of trade, 
and the massive burden of debt servicing. 13 million children who die each year before reaching the age of five are an eloquent and damning testimony of the relationship between a handful of rich imperialist oppressor nations and the vast majority of the poor oppressed nations. These 13 million children, the equivalent of two and a half holocausts every year, die in their mother's arms, unseen and uncommemorated. The political and ideological representatives of imperialism, which, be it said in passing, was the sole author of the Holocaust during the Second World War, while waxing eloquent every year on Holocaust Day, maintain a deadly silence on the far larger Holocaust taking place every year under their system. And that is one of the reasons that if someone says to me, we can't have a revolution, it will be, it will be too violent, people will get hurt, it will be chaotic. The system is already a place of chaos and violence for the majority of people in the world. <laughs> Getting rid of that system is a far greater act of kindness and any chaos caused by it will, in the long term, be far better for the world than allowing the present system to continue with all the harm that it is doing. Lenin said in uh, the preface to the French and German editions of imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, that capitalism long ago grew into a world system of colonial oppression and of financial strangulation of the overwhelming majority of the population of the world by a handful of advanced countries. This handful of marauders shares the booty and armed to the teeth wages endless wars against the oppressed nations and from time to time draws the whole world into their war over the division of their booty. That's a quote uh, that is becoming more and more relevant by the day, unfortunately. Without question, capitalism has now singled out a handful of exceptionally rich and powerful states which plunder the whole world by simply clipping coupons. And by that he means simply looking after stocks and shares, investments that people can make in, in companies as they export capital and uh, build factories and exploit resources around the world referring to the, the global wealth that imperialism uh, exploits and uh, extracts from these other countries. To the cries of those who, while accepting as a natural law the free movement of capital and goods across international frontiers, oblivious to ethnic, political and national boundaries, call for a halt to immigration, the huddled masses from the poorer parts of the world pay no heed, for their desperation leaves them with no scope for the capacity to listen. Making migration illegal forces migrants into the hands of criminal gangs who are happy to take all the money a migrant has and place them in mortal danger on a boat or lorry with the promise of getting them into a country. So one of the reasons... Oh, I'll come back to that a bit later. Sorry, the notes are a little bit, um, little bit messy at the moment. The same respectable bourgeois politicians who detested Nigel Farage for his populist anti-EU stance suddenly sounded quite like him when they began describing immigrants and asylum seekers like invasive insects. While Labour tout their strong anti-immigrant stance as much as the Tories, the reality is that since Tony Blair, both parties have overseen increasing numbers of immigrants over the past two decades, reaching a record high last year at net migration of over 500,000 people 
into the UK. But these immigration controls actually increase immigration as it becomes more urgent for people to become settled in a country that could offer them more work and security than try to leave it and try and gain entry at another point. Uh, there's one example uh, when Britain was looking at introducing uh, an act to restrict migrants from the Commonwealth. Uh, previously, after the war, uh, Britain had been putting out adverts to encourage people from the Caribbean and elsewhere in the Commonwealth to come to Britain and work because the country needs to be rebuilt. And so it was just years later that they started um, trying to put in this uh, anti-immigrant bill after encouraging people to come and move over here. And, you know, we've seen in recent years the, the disgraceful um, actions against people that came over on the Windrush even in the 1950s, trying to deport people that had been here for 70 years. But they were trying to introduce a anti-Commonwealth migration law in 1962. And uh, this actually increased immigration from previous years more than sixfold over the past three years, two or three years. And this was because people were looking to, to come to the country, even though there weren't as many advertised jobs at the moment and there weren't as many immigrants really coming into the country from these places. Um, people didn't want to lose out on the chance of, well, there might be more work there in future. Um, it might be better in future. If I get in now, I'll be able to stay and then find a job later. Um, so that put a lot of extra pressure on people to actually immigrate at the time, uh, rather than what was occurring before, was that through networks of friends and families and publications and organisations, etc., um, people were responding to the actual demand for jobs. So when demand for jobs was low, less advertising for uh, work, uh, immigration declined because people knew, oh, if I move over there, I'm less likely to find a job. So why am I going to upend my life, move halfway across the world and not be able to get a job? But that, those immigration controls put the pressure to get into these countries that can offer a better, uh, a better life and potentially work in the future, even if there's no immediate, um, immediate guarantee of that. And... This inspires a really contradictory um, approach that we see today, uh, where governments claim they're concerned about illegal immigration and they're cracking down even on legal migration. Uh, and the same thing with um, leaving the EU. It was the reasons given were that they wanted to reduce immigration, uh, etc. Um, but immigration keeps <laughs> keeps increasing. So surely they could do something about it. But the reality is that this is uh, an economic choice and a political choice. So the political choice is that they want to use the issue of immigration to divide workers, particularly illegal immigrants um, who can be super exploited. They want to put this pressure on uh, the British working class. Um, so while Tony Blair was overseeing reforms to immigration controls in the 90s and opening up Britain to more and more uh, immigration. Um, David Blunkett was at the same time boasting that 49 illegal immigrants had been detained in a raid in 2003. And in the same year, he said there was no limit to the number of immigrants Britain could absorb. So what's the point in this further gradation of immigrants from legal immigrants to illegal immigrants? 
the reality is it's just to divide workers. Imperialist nations require immigration as they need to replace or increase labour, but they also want to squeeze the working class. And so they're decimating every means by which labourers can reproduce themselves in Britain, from child support and childcare to wages and rent. And almost everything in this country works against workers on an average wage who want to raise a family. And this very same situation faces immigrants to this country, who while finding work and a more stable environment, also face the crushing pressure that the bourgeoisie exerts on the British working class as they become members of that class themselves. And that's a very important point that our party tries to make about any worker that comes to this country. They become a member of the British working class if they're living here, if they're working here, uh, because it's that understanding and that unity that we need to unite workers and fight together. So immigrants provide a very easy scapegoat for the ruling classes. They blame immigrants for job losses while their businesses are busy cutting staff. Um, they blame immigrants for businesses closing down while, while the capitalists themselves close down those businesses and move factories and work overseas. And they divide workers into the immigrants and illegal immigrants um, just to keep people more concerned about. Illegal immigrants can be super exploited here. They have no access to any legal protections. Um, they don't need to be paid minimum wage. And this actually makes it um, part of the solution is to legalize all immigrants, including illegal immigrants. Because while those immigrants can be super exploited, they form another section of the working class that can be used um, by the capitalists uh, as well as um, legal immigrants um, to exert pressure on the British working class. Um, immigration controls, with their implied message that immigration and not capitalism is the problem, divides the working class by pitting its indigenous section against the foreigners. As such, they're a powerful ideological weapon in the hands of the bourgeoisie, a weapon directed against the proletariat in its entirety. And in addition, by creating the conditions for illegal entry of foreign workers and the resultant distinction between legal and illegal immigrants, these controls create nightmarish conditions for those entering illegally, thus making them the perfect material for super-exploitation, resulting in slave-like working conditions and leading, in a large number of cases, to the dependence on criminal gangs, sexual slavery, child prostitution and child labour. They're the source of wage subsidies to the employers and price subsidies to the general public. So I hope that talk has given some, uh, some overview of the content of this uh, fantastic pamphlet. Like I say, it's missed out a lot, especially facts and figures, but uh, a lot of the, the nuance and uh, info, I'd really suggest uh, getting yourself a copy of this, having a read of this. Uh, it really um, does go through much better than I have done today, uh, the reasons for immigration and the reasons why um, we need to try and convince the working class that we have to stand together with immigrants, we have to stand together with illegal immigrants and uh, abolish immigration controls and legalise all immigrants so we can fight together. 
and that's not a popular viewpoint amongst the British working class, certainly, because of the power and uh, wealth of propaganda that they put out putting these viewpoints. Um, but hopefully that gives you some ammo and some idea um, of what the actual points and actual issues with immigration, rather than the, the simplistic and wrong ideas that immigrants are coming to take our jobs, they're going to overwhelm us, um, you know, we've never seen immigration like this before. Um, immigration today is, large-scale immigration today is a product of capitalism and imperialism. Um, and it's a result of either economic or military intervention in other countries. And being against those workers, either on a national basis, war and fighting and uh, economic struggle, or in this country against them as fellow workers, is not going to help the British working class. We have to understand that we have much more in common with a worker wherever they are in the world, uh, wherever they come from, than we do with our own bourgeoisie. And that's the only key to the immigration question. Thanks so much, Dan. That was a fantastic summary. It, it brought up lots of points and questions um, and further, further kind of points I could make. But as I'm making a presentation now, I'll try and just uh, say what I have to do within the, within the body of that presentation. And perhaps afterwards, we can throw it open to discussion. Because I do notice that when you, um, when you post any information about immigration, you know, that you will have people saying, you're just like the ruling class. They, they want loads of immigrants to come here. They're bringing loads of immigrants. It's an attack on the working class. And there certainly is a brand of socialists who will defend an anti-immigrant position as being an attack on the working class. They say, better for those people to stay where they are and fight the system there, and better for our people to be here and without the threat to their jobs, pension, benefit. <laughs> and it's to totally misunderstand and mischaracterize capitalism. We lived in a, in, a, in a world and in a country, a particular country where being a center of the imperialist world, we've exploited the whole world. Not you and me. Well, maybe a bit. No, not, not you and me. Not, not the working people of the country. But our ruling class has been the center of empire. So it's not a historical accident that people from all around the world, have flocked to the centres of empire. It's a bit like osmosis. Do you guys know the concept of osmosis? Movement of fluid across a semi-permeable membrane. Well, you know, borders of countries are artificial constructs that our ruling class has created around to subdivide the population of the world. It didn't used to exist. Passports didn't used to exist. hundred years ago, it was very unpopular to institute passports. Why the hell should I need a passport to move around the world? Yeah, new concept. Actually, they're temporary concepts. I'm going to throw that one in there. <laughs> Which is not to say that after the revolution, we wouldn't have some kind of border and immigration control because for, us, for a while, the class struggle has a national character, even after they're a socialist state. So, of course, these things are going to be with us for a while, even though, they, even though they're temporary. But, um, you know, wealth has moved up a gradient. It's moved from everywhere. That, you know, the, the sun never used to set on the empire. One thing I did like that George used to say, a joke of his grandfather. He said, uh, you know, the British had an empire upon which the sun never set. And God said, well, that's because 
You know, no one could trust the English in the dark. <laughs> you know, but it was a huge empire. And, and they made money from those empires, not just by looting, but by exporting capital, by exploiting the labor of the people who lived there. All of that wealth, essentially, or the vast majority of it, apart from being reinvested there, was repatriated. So there was a huge flow of wealth from the colonies to the mainland. Why, why are our streets paved with gold? And if you walk around the city of London and you see the quality of the stone and their buildings, you see they literally are paved with gold. I mean, the, the, the quality of the buildings, the amount of wealth that's concentrated just in their edifice, let alone the capital flows that are still centered there, you see, yes, actually, despite the experience of an average worker, particularly one who lives in the north where your cost of living is going, getting poorer, where your housing situation is getting worse, where your schooling is getting worse, for the ruling class, our streets are paved with gold. The, that's why our country, why it's a small country, still is the sixth richest nation on earth and why it still has a, a, a hand-in-glove role with US imperialism and it's sort of hand in, in the affairs of every country. For, so for those who think this is a, you know, our interest in world affairs is strange or we should concentrate on the workers here, we're following our ruling class. Our ruling class has a hand in the affairs of all nations based on its colonial legacy and history. For that reason, it's concentrated vast wealth here and as Dan said, impoverished masses of humanity all over the world. Now those countries, many of them are trying to move out of that poverty. And when they do move out of that poverty, how do they do it? They say, actually, our national resources here, oil, gold, coltan, copper, zinc, lead, agricultural resources, should be owned by the local people. Why can't we benefit from our wealth? So they nationalize. And what's the reaction of our governments when they do that? Quite right, Lucy. You know, we send F-16 fighter jets. You know, we send our Raytheon cruise missiles. We invade countries. We say we're doing it because we're concerned about, you know, the benefits of education of women in Afghanistan. But we're not. Okay, we're concerned about oil. We're concerned about trade routes. We, our ruling class, are concerned about continuing the flow of profit to their coffers. So they've concentrated wealth here and poverty there. And just as water tends to move from area of high concentration to low concentration, human beings tend to look for a better life. It's an inevitable, if there's one aspect of human nature, it's this, they want a better life. They want to improve their life. They want their children to have better opportunities than they did. They want to have a secure existence. They don't want them to be shot in front of them in their own homes. These are natural things. These are the things we can all understand and connect with as human beings. But what does that mean when you live in an impoverished country that's a war-torn country where you face starvation? It means making the difficult decision to leave sometimes and go elsewhere. And where do you go? You go where the wealth has gone. So it's the direct act of our ruling class that has led, on the one hand, to the crisis of their system and the difficult situation the working people at home are facing, but even more, the crisis of people abroad. And so immigration is a natural and increasing phenomenon that people move for labor, and we'll see that legal immigration, people moving for labor, is the majority, as Dan has pointed out. And people run from war. And if you're running from war, you may not have an opportunity to apply for the appropriate electronic visa at the right place of reference. Because as we'll see from this bill that I'm going to talk about, and, and perhaps I'll bring myself back to what I'm going to be talking about, which is the Illegal Migration Bill, uh, which is Bill 284, 2022-23, uh, which has already been amended in committee and has been through the House of Commons, but is not yet signed into uh, in the law, so it remains a bill rather than an act. It makes it incumbent upon anyone seeking to claim asylum to do so 
only if they've moved directly from the place that they, have, that they are running from to Britain. Well, Britain is an island nation. You know, so you'll see clips of Rishi Sunak standing in Parliament saying, these people have not directly come from places where they are threatened. And I don't know if you'll notice, it's a bit of a legalistic sleight of hand, but that runs through the bill as well. So you have to, to claim asylum, meaning you're someone who's under threat of life and limb, and actually 80% of these asylum seekers, turns out, come from Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, Libya. So the vast majority of them come from countries where not only they really are under threat, but actually they're under threat because we've either had direct occupation, war, destabilization campaign. Now, absolutely, they're direct victims of British and NATO imperialism, US imperialism. So they're the people that we've bombed out of their homes and robbed, not only historically in the empire, but in the immediate preceding 20 years and on an ongoing basis. And they haven't applied for the necessary visa at the safe port of call. Incidentally, there aren't many safe places where you can apply, <laughs> apply for uh, as an asylum seeker legally. So you can only do so once you're in the country. Well, how do you get from those countries to this one? How many direct flights can you find from a war-toward occupied nation? <laughs> direct to London. How can you get on that flight without a visa? How can you apply safely and legally? And always secondarily, as well as making the process impossible, there's an implication that oh, we're not really against those people. They, we do describe them as swarms of immigrants. Swarm, we've got these swarms of immigrants, is what Cameron said. I remember that speech very well. Swarms of immigrants come here. Swarm, insect, subhuman, unwanted, pest. We've got these you know, human beings we're talking about. And I, one, one thing that I think some of the anti-immigration campaigners have got right is no human being is illegal. I like that sticker very much. Have you seen that? No human being is illegal. People move because they're forced to move. They don't make that decision lightly. When they come here, they're going to be made, you know, uh, uh, essentially pariahs. But this, um, this bill essentially makes the process almost impossible and, and quite deliberately so. So this bill was moved by, initially, let's not forget Boris Johnson and Priti Patel. Um, then latterly was uh, Liz Truss and Suella Braveman. Braveman resigned and then was reappointed. And so now it's being put forward essentially by, by Rishi Sunak and Suella Braveman. And we mustn't be like um, hoodwinked into thinking that it's not racist because the people who put it forward are themselves not white. All right, they're absolutely the representatives of a neoliberal elite. And these people are quite declassing, quite ruthless and merciless um, in their servitude, really, to capitalism. I mean, Sunak is the direct scion you know, of a billionaire family. So he's the embodiment, really, um, of the billionaire parasite ruling class. But the others, those Tory, Tory party elites, they know they're onto a good thing, they're making money, and they're servants of capital. They don't care that they're inciting racism or race hatred, but it very much is uh, a racist law, and I want to keep that in mind as we go. It's also sponsored by Dominic Rob, James Cleverly, Gillian Keegan, Robert Jenrick. So, you know, these people become more and more mediocre and less and less memorable. Uh, they've been here for less and less period of time. But in as much as you've seen any of them, you will understand that they're extremely rabid representatives of capital, irrespective of their personal national origins. Because many of them are actually immigrants. The aim of the bill uh, is to see 
that people who arrive in the UK illegally are removed within weeks and receive a lifetime ban on claiming, claiming asylum. And they nicknamed it the Stop the Boats Bill. Stop the Boats Bill. And this is their way of pushing it. Stop the boats, stop the boats. As if the boats, these little boats arriving on the shore are the greatest national threat. It's worth thinking about the number of people who arrived because actually last year there were about 20,000, just over 20,000. 20,000, I've written here somewhere, the percentage of the population it represents was 0.000067% of the population. So just bear that in mind. So this is, this is, these are the people that this bill is aimed against, such a tiny percent of the population. What is, what is, what is the necessity of having such a centerpiece of legislation, particularly when we are allowing and encouraging migration on a large scale? so that if there are half a million people who we are allowing to come and resettle, why so much concentration on illegally expelling and detaining these people? So people who arrive in the UK illegally will be detained, so they'll be imprisoned, actually. So they're coming to ask for asylum, they're fleeing a war-torn situation, they've got terrible personal problems. Some have been tortured, they've left their homes, they've had members of their camp, family killed, sometimes in front of them, they're in post-traumatic stress disorder. They're gonna to come to the border, you don't, you don't have immigration visa. We should have applied in a safe place. You didn't apply safely. You didn't come from a, from a, you come from a safe place. You've come from France. France is not, it's on our list of safe places. <laughs> so you're not really allowed in. You're legal, you're going to be imprisoned. You go directly to prison. Now they're predicting that the numbers will increase. They predict that maybe we'll have as many as 80,000. I'm not exactly sure how they've made that prediction. But say we did have 80,000 people who come illegally to the country asking for asylum and they all have to be imprisoned. Do you actually know what the current, forget asylum seekers, what the, the, the prison population of Britain, do you know what it is at the moment? Well, it turns out it's 80,000. So if you really took these people who came on boats and there really were 80,000 and you imprisoned them all, you immediately double the prison population of Britain. And don't forget, none of these people have committed any crime other than the crime of being born in a war zone and trying to run away from it but we're gonna be doubling the prison population of Britain. And where to put them is another interesting question that this bill deals with. So the concept is that um, if they've arrived illegally and they've almost all arrived illegally by definition because there's no process by which they can arrive legally, um, they'll be immediately prisoned for 28 days without any charges being brought against them. And then they'll be deported the earliest opportunity. And the concept is you either send them back to where they've come from I France very often for these guys. But you can't send them there anymore because we're outside the EU. This is not a pro-EU speech. I want to make it absolutely clear. But, but that legal avenue is gone, so they can't go back to France. So if they have a passport, they can go back to the nation um, where they have a passport from if it's deemed to be a safe country. Now, to be honest, most of the countries that they've got on their list are safe. They've very deliberately put some major centres of immigration like... Um, of legal immigration on the list, but a lot of them are EU countries. So they can go back to that country, but of course most people don't have. Or they can go back to their country of origin if it's deemed safe. A lot of them really aren't safe and they can't go there. Or they've got a safe list of countries, or they can go to a third country on that list of safe countries. And prominent among them, it's not really prominent, but it's prominent because of all the press, is, is the Republic of Rwanda. Yeah. So, so the, the concept is people come here, they're deemed illegal, you ship them off to Rwanda. That's basically the pathway envisaged. But they may have to be here for some time. And, and it deliberately goes through a very long law, going through other previous immigration legislation and saying this doesn't apply. 
You will not be able to invoke your human rights under such and such legislation. That doesn't apply. You will be deemed a threat to public order for the purpose of this, such that the exceptional clause in the modern slavery concept doesn't apply. So even if you're a victim of modern slavery, you don't have to apply your human rights because we're going to deem you a... Under this new legislation, you'll be a threat to public order, so we'll imprison you and deport you. And there are very limited ways that you can, can apply um, to appeal against the decisions. Bear in mind, these are people who come with a foreign language very often. Maybe, maybe they don't speak English. Maybe they're in you know, traumatic stress. The concept they're going to navigate this <laughs> bureaucratic process successfully is anyway slim. It really depends on um, a, a, a pro bono lawyers provided either by the state, which is a minimal service, or by charities, which again is basically a very skeletal and minimal service. Um, and there's even the, essentially people are going to be imprisoned and then they're going to be very quickly taken to a third country, which is meant to be Rwanda, but again, that's subject to um, legal dispute. So at the moment, that doesn't exist as a pathway, but that's the pathway envisaged. So you take people from a range of countries, Sierra Leone, Yemen, um, you know, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, places, you know, they've somehow managed to get all through Europe. You imagine the checkpoints, the fences, the, the privations, the distances they've walked, they've escaped drowning in the Mediterranean Sea once already, they've come through the EU somehow, being chased and hounded by police at every border and crossing and checkpoint. And then finally, they've kind of made it onto a boat and come to England. They think, oh God, maybe, maybe some of them have some connections. Maybe they've got, they've got reasons for coming here. Many of them do. Um, and then immediately imprisoned and deported to Rwanda, which is deemed a safe place. Now, I haven't wanted to emphasize really that, like the history of Rwanda. <laughs> but it has to be reflected on at some point, what is the history of Rwanda? I mean, the whole of Africa is a place which has been subject to neocolonial exploitation. But, you know, there are some states which are friendly to imperialism and some which aren't. And that goes through a change. We constantly, at the ruling class of our, of our countries, on behalf of large mining and telecommunications industries, wage war on some nations that oppose leaders, like Gaddafi. They don't like socialist leaders. They try and get rid of those. They didn't like Amilcar Cabral. They didn't like, you know, uh, Julius Nairi. They don't, they don't, anyone who's progressive, you know, they, don't, they didn't like... Uh, got so many liberation movements. They like very much apartheid South Africa, actually. <laughs> yeah, they, they like it when they have a particularly dictatorial um, general, Abacha maybe, in, uh, in, uh, in Nigeria. People they can do business with. They very much like Sese Seko Mobutu, who was uh, you know, a dictator that the French installed for 40 years after they'd murdered the uh, independence leader, Patrice Lumumba. Very, anyone who helps them loot the resources, very welcome, democratic partner. So when you have, when you have, you know, Tory ministers cackling as they're meeting Paul Kagame, you have to reflect and ask yourself, oh, well, he's not just a, a poor black African man. No, this is a local stooge that they've appointed. He came, I remember very clearly at the time he came to power, because I was one of these strange people who writes articles about what's happening in other countries from a communist perspective, and thinking that he was a leader of this group called the Rwanda, Rwandan Patriotic Front. And it seemed he was getting some good prayer. And, and I had at one stage the, the idea that he might be a democratic leader who was going to help to advance their freedom struggle. And it very quickly became clear that that wasn't the case. It's still unclear exactly what his role was in the Rwandan genocide. But off the back of this genocide, he became the victorious rebel leader who was installed in power, but very quickly did lots of deals with the West. 
And, and what also became clear is you know, around a similar time, around, around 2000, 2001, finally Sesesoka Mobutu in Democratic Republic of Congo, which was previously Zaire, which is a huge country, size of Europe actually, size of Western Europe, in the center of Africa with amazing resources. Not just, not just any resources either, not just diamonds, uranium, cobalt, copper, lithium, but they also have a, a very modern resource that we're not very aware of, something called coltan. I don't know if you're aware, have you heard of coltan? It's tantalite and columbite. It's a, it's a hybrid ore. And from it, you get tantalum. And tantalum turns out to be an absolutely essential component of all modern computing. So the phone that we're streaming this from, the computer that I've got in, within its chips has got high cap capacitance resistance that are made from tantalum, which runs from coltan. 85% of coltan mineral resources are in the eastern provinces, Kivu uh, and uh, um, Katanga of, of eastern DRC. And these countries border with Rwanda. So, Sese Bokumabutu was overthrown. In comes a genuine popular hero of resistance, someone who met Che Guevara. Do you know who that was? Have you heard of Laurent Kabila? So he's someone who's been in the background fighting the resistance war ever since the 60s, finally came to power, swept across, the US kind of armed him, we thought what was gonna happen, but he, he very rapidly moved to an independent policy and developed a kind of domestic currency for what was then renamed the Democratic Republic of Congo. Amazing. And what happened? The very same agents of imperialism, Belgium, French, CIA, moved in after a couple of years, arranged for his assassination and overthrow, plunged the whole Congo into war. And this happened simultaneously with something which you think was totally far removed that my kids would know more about, which is the launch of the PS2. What the hell has that got to do with it? It's very difficult to put these pieces together. Strange foreign countries, names we don't understand, and the PlayStation, which we all love. <laughs> we all love the PlayStation. If it happened to support the PlayStation, that's really good, isn't it? And what's that got to do with immigration anyway? <laughs> so US and British multinationals found a way to loot these resources despite the fact that they'd been nationalized. And they used Paul Kagame's Rwanda and the RPF to invade. They also used various Ugandan stooges and they used various stooges on the ground. But they started a war in the eastern you know, part of the DRC, which has been going on from that day to this. And locals, because they speak French, it was, a, it was a Belgian colony, they call it la guerre sans fin. The war without end. And in that war, we know that at least 10 million people have died. And very occasionally gets a brief mention in the news. Not like Ukraine, though. It's not important like Ukraine because it's not about fighting Russia and furthering the interests of our multinationals. It's just some Africans and basically we're just causing chaos there. And while the chaos and murder happens, well, we've got control of the mines and we continue to mine. And we're doing all right. And of course, the ultimate profiteers behind it, why did, the, why did Coltan become such a massive issue at just that time these things were happening? Because with the launch of the PlayStation, there was a global shortage of... Cold, uh, of, um, of coltan and of tantalum, which is necessary for the capacitors, for the motherboards and the circuitry to produce it. So the price went sky high, and this kind of destabilizing operation became incredibly profitable enterprise. And the ultimate you know, Western multinationals who benefit from it, including Sony, including all of the middlemen and the mining companies, of course, are safely hiding in a nice city, in the city of London, where the streets are paved with gold. 
But of course, for 10 million killed, think of the number of immigrants that displaces. Think of the number of people it displaces from their land and normal livelihood. Where do those people go? And so that's led to Suella Brayman saying, and she's said this in connection with this speech, don't be confused by her black stroke Indian face. You know? <laughs> you know, it's not where you're from, it's who you represent. It's like they say with Zelensky, can't be a fascist. He's a Jew. Well, the two things are not mutually exclusive. So do not imagine that you can't be a racist just because you've got a black face, you can. But the point is not, you know, racism, good or bad, one race, good or bad. The point is, who does this policy serve? And it serves the interests of the multinationals who continue to loot here and tell the working people that it's not their fault, that conditions are bad, look to the immigrants. So the price went sky high, Colton through the roof, war without end. But this is just one example. It's one example that no one knows about, even despite the huge magnitude of it. Huge magnitude. So, 28 days, people will be deported to Rwanda, where this genocide happened just in 2001, where they're engaged in constant looting and war of a neighboring state in order to facilitate the profits. You can see why they have, a, he has a very close relationship with US imperialism and British imperialism. You know, Africa is a major center of AFRICOM. United States Army, of course, can go anywhere. And they happen to organize their army according to not just like divisions, but continents of the globe. <laughs> so they've got AFRICOM, their African division of their army. One of their major bases, of course, is also with him in Rwanda. So safe third country, immigrants will come, they'll be illegal, they'll be in prison, they'll go there. And if they have any appeals to make, well, they can do it once they're safely deported. It's a bit like paying your parking fine and begging for the money back. <laughs> it's quite hard. It's unlikely you'll get it back. But you better pay. So then you're going to be gone and you can argue about it later. The, the, the anarchist used to have a badge, help the police beat yourself up. It's a, it's, it's a bit like that. <laughs> so under-18s who arrive, unaccompanied, are kind of, they, they're exempt in that, the, so the, the, the law establishes the duty of the Home Secretary to deport all these people rapidly. And under 18, so unaccompanied, ad, unaccompanied adults, there's not a duty, so he, there can be exception, but he can still deport them. <laughs> That's very clearly stipulated. So actually, under 18s, unaccompanied adults will still be able to be deported. And there's a kind of vague suggestion that we'll only do it for humanitarian reasons if we can get a better situation elsewhere. Um, and so asylum seekers who enter the UK legally will not only be removed, but they'll have a, a permanent ban from returning. And asylum claims from those who travel to the UK legally will de be deemed inadmissible and reconsidered in the third country so they'll go. Uh, I've talked about the threat to public order. We've talked a little bit about where the migrants will go. So apart from Albania with a separate deal, essentially the main thrust is going to be uh, Uganda. Now, Section 3 of the Human Rights Act 1998, and I haven't read the whole Rights Act, um, but it, the, the Section 3 is about interpretation of legislation. And it's essentially this. So Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, which is a European law, but still is written into, into British law, requires anyone interpreting our laws in general to do so in a way that is compatible with human rights, whether they're a court, a tribunal, or a public authority. Which seems reasonable. So generally, you should interpret laws in a way that doesn't impinge on people's human rights. Well, it's very explicitly written into this act that this is discounted. Okay, so it does, does not apply. And it doesn't apply because they're saying that these people are a threat to public order and therefore they've got a right to deport them immediately. 
So the United Nations High Commission for Refugees has said it was profoundly concerned by the bill that would allow the government to criminalise, detain and deport asylum seekers because essentially it's getting rid of the right to asylum. Right? It's, very, it's very deliberately aimed to get rid of the, the right to asylum. Um, so the UN 1951 Refugee Convention uh, is being violated and Vicky Tennant of the UNHCR said, we're very concerned this is effectively closing off access to asylum in the UK for people arriving irregularly. And as we've pointed out, these people have got no way of arriving regularly. In fact, if they had a way of staying in their own house, in their own home regularly, they would stay. So we believe, that's the UNHCR, it's a clear breach of the Refugee Convention. And remember, even people with very, and sorry, and even people with very compelling claims will simply not have the opportunity to put these forward. As I've said, Sunak, when he introduced the law, said, well, these people are not directly fleeing because they're coming from France, and there's been a big effort into that. So again, the concept that they're all bogus, it's not real, and certainly we have no responsibility. Why should we feel any moral guilt for their plight? So the overall effect, you've come, you haven't applied legally. We didn't give you permission. You're therefore deemed a threat to public order. You can be deprived of your civil rights and criminalised, so you can be imprisoned without any wrongdoing. And after 28 days, you'll go to that, th that safe third country. Now, it's important to know also that actually, as this safe third country, currently, number one, is being challenged. It doesn't actually exist. So currently, the law will be inoperable. Not that it's been made into a law. And two, um, what was the second thing? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the Rwanda itself currently has envisaged that there will be only 200 people a year who will go via that route, even though we're talking about 80,000. So what happens, begs the question, what happens to the other 79,800 people, if that proje projection is correct, because last year it was only 25,000, what happens to those people? Well, they're going to be detained. So what's going to happen to the prison population here? And what will that cost be? Is it more expensive to settle people, give them the right to work and integrate into society or to imprison them? Is it more damaging to them? Is it more damaging to society? Suella Braveman's utterance is particularly kind of worthy of note. She said the following, and she said this on Tuesday, I think the 7th of March. 2023. Speaking in the House of Commons, she said, there are, and this is what she's saying is the point of the bill, there are a hundred million people. What's the population of Britain? 67 million. 67 million. So there are a hundred million people who would qualify for asylum under the current law. Let's be clear, they are coming here. <laughs> Yeah. 100 million people, they're coming. This is the crucial point of this bill. They will not stop coming here until the world knows that if you enter Britain illegally, there's no way of coming illegally, by the way, you will be detained and swiftly removed. Removed back to your country, if it's safe, or to a safe third country, like Rwanda. <laughs> and that is precisely what this bill will do. That is how we plan to stop the boats. 
We've talked already a bit about who are the asylum seekers. Amnesty International, for once, they're an imperialist organisation, but they got quite a decent, you know, um, definition. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs. They said, there are many reasons why, this is Amnesty International, there are many reasons why people around the globe seek to rebuild their lives in a different country. Some people leave home to get a job or an education. Others are forced to flee persecution or human rights violations such as torture. Millions flee from armed conflicts or other crises of violence. Some no longer feel safe and might have been targeted just because of who they are or what they do or believe. Ethnicity, religion, sexuality, political opinions. These journeys, which all start with the hope of a better future, can also be full of danger and fear. Some people risk falling prey to human trafficking and other forms of exploitation. Some are detained by the authorities as soon as they arrive in a new country. Once they're settled and start building a new life, many face daily racism, xenophobia and discrimination. Some people end up feeling alone and isolated because they've lost the support networks that most of us take for granted, our communities, colleagues, relatives and friends. That's all very true to me. On a purely human decency basis, you'd think we'd extend these people some right to build a new life and to play a positive and constructive role for society. The problem, of course, is that our current society doesn't afford working people in general the right to participate constructively in society, have decent homes, education, livelihood, healthcare. All of these things are going down. And therein is the problem. It's not a problem of the immigrants. The problem is the conditions that workers face under capitalism. And we have to very assiduously separate in our mind the two and help the workers to see also that they're very different things. There were some more facts and figures I had just about the populations to kind of emphasize those points. But I think maybe we can draw it to a close there. I think I'll cover the main points. I think, I think you know, really in conclusion, I think the law is ever unlikely to come in. It is almost impossible to enact. I don't think it will get through Parliament. I don't think the provisions will work. So then you just have to concentrate on what is the reason? What is the reason to stand up and make all these statements? And it's just that, isn't it? It's to send... I don't even like the term dog whistle because of the people who kind of use it. But, it, but it's, a, it's a very clear way of saying these people are a problem in fact they are the problem you know and I've had even comrades who are allegedly socialists who are will sometimes some come up with statements that you know the British working class don't want immigrants there's nothing socialist about immigration and they're putting pressure on our resources locally and therefore we should be opposed to it but the whole point is even to, to think like that is to put the responsibility totally in the wrong place. It's not a question of what we want or don't want. As Dan said, even right-wing governments who are strongly against immigration in Europe end up presiding over immigration. The wealth is here. The chaos is there. People will move from chaos to wealth. It's that simple. It will happen as long as we live in a divided, unequal world. So it can't be resisted. So then the question is, how do we change it? And the only way of changing is actually getting rid of this system of exploitation and building a much more equal society. And that is the answer, actually, to the domestic problems of working people here, irrespective of their racial, religious and cultural origin. Are you wrapping it up? I'm going to be cutting. No, no, you don't have to. Did you, did you stop it? No.
No, no. I think maybe, I don't know. Do you guys want to have a Q&A and, and do you want to have it recorded or should we end the recording and chat amongst ourselves? I think it'd be good if people had questions um, that we could answer about this, this topic. Yeah, if, so if no one minds, we'll just keep it going. And um, if everyone leaves online, that's okay. <laughs> and if they don't, well, that's fine too. Uh, great. So thanks all of you for coming down. And are there any issues around this? Because it's... Um, yeah, don't be afraid. There's no, there's no question which will be deemed too racist to answer. <laughs> Peter. Um, what's the Labour Party's take on, on the bill? Just repeat the question again. So, yeah, so what's the Labour Party's uh, take on the bill? So I think they've genuinely been... The, the, the Labour Party's always slightly ambivalent. They want to play both sides of the fence. The bourgeoisie, when it comes to elections, doesn't have anything to offer working people. And the Labour Party doesn't have anything to offer working people. And particularly Keir Starmer's Labour Party doesn't have anything to offer working people, apart from more of the same. And there are a lot of these videos circulating where, you know, at the time of the election against Corbyn, he was saying one thing, and then more recently he's saying the opposite thing. Because ultimately they're, they're two sides of the same coin. They're both representatives of the capitalist class. So they, they ultimately also will push the immigration button but they would also like a bit of ammunition to accuse the Tories of being racist. So they kind of, you know, various spokesmen say different things. They haven't had a coordinated effort. They've certainly not made the pledge that they will oppose the legislation. They've not made the pledge that they'll overturn the legislation. It's like, what did the Labour Party do about anything? I mean, they, they made a big fuss about anti-working class, uh, 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 anti-union legislation under Thatcher. Labour were in for a long time after that. Which piece of that legislation did they roll back? Which did they try to roll back? Which did they even bring up as a talking point, like we must make this an issue? Never. So they want to be, they want to be the voice of the working people. The Guardian will portray them as saying one thing, whilst also being a staunchly imperialist organ. It'll kind of give some liberal lefty values. You know, the sum will be another. And ultimately, it comes down to which press baron supports which leader, which party generally tends to get into power. So Labour have been ambivalent. It depends exactly which representative. And Labour are very good at cultivating a, a left-wing group, aren't they? So, you know, Corbyn will say one thing. Is he in the Labour Party? Is he out of the Labour Party? Will he be able to run for Labour? For We're all distracted by these questions. Labour will have someone else. Who's, who's um, the other darling of the Labour left at the moment? Young, young Asian MP, man. Zara Sultana. So no doubt, now I don't look at her Twitter feed because it just doesn't interest me, but from time to time I see it. No doubt, she'll have come out strongly against it and said some pretty all right things about it without exposing the deeper reasons as to why it's in, in the interest of the white working people of Britain who maybe were immigrants at the time of the Norman, <laughs> Norman conquest, right? To oppose anti-immigrant legislation. That immigrants aren't the threat to them. It's the export of capital as a threat to them. It's mechanisation of labour that's a threat to them. It's the fact that they have a ruling class who monopolises all the wealth of their country that's a threat to them. Um, they won't make those points, but they'll make some points. So, like all things, you know, they have an ambivalent attitude. They won't systematically oppose it. When it comes to election, they'll be free to say whatever they want on the doorstep, as they always are, depending on who they speak to and who they meet. And Keir will be led by focus group and opinion poll into his sound bite messages and that will dominate the election and then we'll have a new government. You know, Labour, Labour's essential position on all questions 
is the same as the Tory party position, which is what is necessary to get into power and what is necessary to represent the interests of the bourgeoisie from moment to moment. So they change, you know, but um, you know, they, they don't have a coherent uh, message either against this piece of legislation or against any other anti-immigrant piece of legislation. I mean, my dad has written a very good, sorry, Harpal Bra, for those online, if you're still there, um, have, has written a very good book called um, Bourgeois Nationalism or Proletarian Internationalism about the question of racism in the working class and identity politics and why we don't agree with separatism. We don't agree with black nationalism. We don't agree with necessarily, you know, separate schooling for every religion, race, ethnicity. All of that is negative, very negative. We, we think there should be one, but I don't agree with private education. I think there should be one system of education that everyone sinks or swims in together is the best way to make sure that education really does its proper job, you know. But, um, you know, he, he, he pointed out in that, in that book a long time ago um, uh, that, it, that it was in the interests. Um, uh, I'd like to mention that the Daily Mail yesterday was coming in the, in the front page and the following thing, an elected lords plot to block Rwanda fly, flight law. And it's interesting because the, if there is a, a monarchic, pro-monarchy uh, paper in this country, they really mean it's one of them, and here it's pointing about the unelected lords, just because they are uh, making points about the law. Yeah, sorry, I've, kind of, I've kind of drifted off in here. Dan, carry on. Uh, uh, yeah, just just further on that um, topic, I think like yeah, a couple of comrades were raising the yeah kind of uh, idea, Ranjit and others, that it's it's a diversionary tactic. It's it's just something to get people whipped up about, and they're arguing over the this asylum bill, which was about twenty to twenty five thousand people per year try and claim asylum. One of the reasons they do that is um, like going back to the um, pamphlet gives the example of what happened when immigration uh, controls were tightened in the 60s. Uh, people start to seek other means of getting into this country. And so that leads to illegal immigration. It leads to people trying to uh, get into the country through asylum applications uh, because they are trying to seek security, stability and uh, a better life uh, because that's the, the option that is then given to them if you remove the other option. And, yeah, conversely, this uh, increases uh, the number of people trying to immigrate to the country uh, rather than choosing to go to somewhere because, oh, there's jobs available there, I can provide for my family, I can move them out of uh, the war-torn area or, you know, the poverty-stricken area, uh, which has, you know, been caused by these imperialist countries themselves. Um, people are now desperate to try and seek any means that they can uh, to get out of their present situation and to the centres of wealth. But these asylum applications um, are a drop in the ocean. So there's an estimated around potentially a million illegal immigrants in Britain. So that's not an insignificant number. And there's 500,000 legal immigrants. So looking at 20... 500,000 um, net migration uh, last year, I think it was. Um, and this is the economic reality. So it's fantastic. They, for them, the bourgeoisie and the government, 
that they have this issue, which really impacts a tiny minority of people trying to come into the country. 20,000 a year is nothing compared to the 500,000 that actually entered the country last year legally, or the 1 million illegal immigrants that exist in this country at the moment who are being super exploited, being paid one or two pounds a year, can't... Um, one, yeah, one or two pounds an hour, um, and you know can't have access to any kind of rights, health and safety, support or security. Um, and so it really is a fraction. And you know they've, they've been going on about this this bill to try and stop twenty thousand people um, from le making legitimate asylum applications. Um, you know that is that is a human right. That is a crucial thing to allow people to do to leave a country if their life is in imminent danger. Um, so trying to stop 20,000 people a year is insane when we've been saying, you know, the government has been saying, oh, there's an open invitation to, to Ukrainians. Uh, any amount of Ukrainians that want to come over, that's fine. There's an open invitation to people from Hong Kong. Three million people almost uh, were given an invitation um, to come and settle in Britain and gain citizenship. So clearly for them, it's, it's the economic reality that immigrants are required in Western Europe and the USA to support the economy. It, we need immigrants to do jobs, not because we don't like doing them, not because we don't like picking the potatoes or, or caring for people in care homes or the NHS, uh, which is where a lot of immigrants, uh, immigrant workers um, uh, work in, uh, but because labor doesn't have a chance to reproduce itself here to the extent that is required uh, because of the position that the British working class is put in with the lack of facilities and access to um, child care, uh, maternity and paternity leave, um, finding homes that are big enough, finding homes that they can afford at all, being paid enough to think about supporting children, having a good education system to raise those children. So the economic reality is that these countries, Western Europe and the USA and the other imperialist countries, need workers but they're unwilling to give us the chance to reproduce and do work uh, because it's cheaper and it's, it's more efficient for them to just take other workers from other countries. And this contributes a lot to brain drain in those countries as well. Um, lots of specialists from Eastern Europe, uh, you know, highly, highly educated doctors and, and professors um, came over here after the collapse of uh, Yugoslavia in the Eastern Bloc, same with Russia, uh, Ukraine and... Um, all these trained people from all over the world who come to be nurses and doctors and do other jobs as well as the low-paid jobs, um, you know, are simply part of the squeezing of countries from around the world for their labour power as well as their resources, as well as the, the squeezing of the working class in Britain, who, as mentioned, these people then become a part of the work, same working class that is being squeezed and reproduces the need for that... Um, immigration of labour. So, like Ranjit said, the, our response to that is to level the playing field, stop exploiting other countries, um, stop looting their resources, uh, and then people can choose to move where they want to live. If someone wants to live and work in Britain because they like the culture and, and the atmosphere and everything else, then they will still people will still choose to do that. But there won't be the dire economic or uh, military circumstances that force 
huge amounts of people uh, around the world to, to try and seek a better life. Oh. Those things, I probably won't even remember them, but thanks anyway for that. And I just wanted to say, um, on the subject of um, detention, being imprisonment, um, there, is, there is a kind of difference between the two structures. Um, detention centres have existed prior to Tony Blair, but certainly he introduced them on a mass scale. 